Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, Episode 53. Guilt will follow him all his days. Today's podcast is a uh, little bit of a difficult one for me to give as uh, the person who inspired me to learn about Russian history and history in general, my father, passed away this morning at the age of 89. Uh, he had suffered a massive stroke a few days ago. And, you know, I was debating whether to uh, do this podcast or not, but in his honor, and, you know, he gave me a lot of love for history, and I decided that I was going to go on as he would have wished. So, here we go. Last week, we recounted the short reign of Paul I, his assassination by his inner circle, and the ascension of his son, Alexander, to the throne as emperor and Tsar of all Russia. Alexander, as you will find out in the coming weeks, is considered to be the most enigmatic of all the Russian rulers. His reign is said to have had two phases, the early one liberal and the latter more conservative. I, though, tend to disagree as the liberal phase was really only in spirit and talk with little true liberal reform. And what reform did occur, the majority of the people, the serfs, were certainly not the beneficiary. Last week, I didn't complete something that should have been done, and it was a whole comment made by Palin to Alexander when the new Tsar hesitated to take control. His full comment was, quote, Stop being a child. Go and reign. Show your face to the guards. The welfare of millions of people depends upon your resolve. Alexander, for his part, was unhappy with the way his father had ruled those brief four years, so it is highly likely that he was in on the overthrow. It is the murder of Paul that was to weigh heavily on his soul for the rest of his life. As for his father's rule, he said in a letter to his former liberal tutor, Laharp, quote, When my father came to the throne, he wished to reform everything. The beginning of his reign was indeed bright enough but its continuation has not fulfilled expectations. Everything has been turned upside down. I think that if ever the time comes for me to reign, rather than go into voluntary exile myself, I had far better devote myself to the task of giving freedom to my country and thereby preventing her from becoming, in the future, a toy in a madman's hands. His talk of voluntarily exiling himself would be prophetic, but I'm getting way too far ahead of myself. To understand Alexander, we must understand how he was raised. His grandmother, Catherine, raised him with love and care, giving him a liberally-minded tutor and giving him a sense of freedom, grooming him for the throne. His father, on the other hand, was a taskmaster, shunning the Russian ways for a more Prussian attitude. He was also very distrustful of Alexander and his brother Constantine, as he viewed them as a threat to his rule and as being raised by his hated mother Catherine, which meant they were for his mother's policies, which Paul hated. This gives rise to the many accounts that Alexander's personality was two-sided, one liberal in mind, one Prussian in action. He talked much of creating a constitutional monarchy within a representatively-based government. 
He talked of freeing the serfs, but, as he said it, without shocks. But Alexander loved to march his soldiers, like his father did, in the Prussian style. Aside from that, let's face it, he had a Prussian wife as well. Growing up, trying to please both uh, Catherine and Paul would make anyone bipolar. But Alexander did as well as you could expect. In the beginning of his reign, the emperor had a committee of friends to give him advice. This so-called unofficial committee of his young friends included, and I hope to pronounce their names as well as possible here, Adam Sartor Sartorsky, Count Kochuni, Novosiltsev, and Count Stroganov. These men were to map out great reformers for Russia, few of which ever came to fruition. They truly wanted to grant Russia a constitution, although the committee didn't want one like the one in the United States or the United Kingdom, but one that created an orderly system of government and mechanical harmony based on rule of law. Count Palin, upon Alexander's ascension, had taken control of the military, as Alexander at the beginning was suffering from what we would call dysfunctional lethargy, as Duffy and Ricci put in their book, Tsars. Palin recalled the Russian army sent by Paul to invade India. He also signed a deal with the British Admiral, Horatio Nelson, to avoid an almost certain attack he had planned on the Russian fleet in Kronstadt. All this personal power that Palin was gathering made the emperor nervous, as this was the man who dispatched his father, and who was to say that he wouldn't do the same to Alexander? Obviously, he kept a very wary eye on Palin. Maria, Emperor Paul's widow, also hated him, because he refused her request to be made empress following the murder. She finally convinced Alexander to have Count Palin retired to his country estate, in late 1801. Alexander did do some reforming early on to reverse Paul's erratic and anti-Catherine rules. Not only did he open the Russian borders to foreign travel, he granted amnesty to all political prisoners and exiles, abolished the secret police, and reinstated the charter of the nobility and charter of the cities. In the parlors of St. Petersburg, Alexander talked about how he hated his hereditary monarchy, wanting to replace it with an American-style constitution. He also went on about how the serfs needed to be freed, but all that talk was just that, talk. While he debated these and many other liberal reforms with his unofficial committee, the real debates were with others in the nobility that were far more conservative. This is another example of Alexander's split personality developed in the battle between Catherine and Paul. It was in 1802 that a seemingly strange request was made of Alexander by one Count Sergei Romyantsev to be allowed to free a large number of his serfs and give them land and allow them to become free farmers. This was not allowed to this date. Now, despite heavy opposition to this from many large landowners, the emperor signed the law known as the Law Concerning Agricultural Workers in February 1803. While only 37,000 were freed due to this law during Alexander's reign of 24 years, 
it marks the real beginning of the end of this shameful Russian institution. There was finally a ray of hope for the tens of millions who had never before had any hope of a better life. Alexander also abandoned the hostilities with Great Britain undertaken by his father. He cautiously and nervously watched events unfolding in France as well as Napoleon began to gobble up country after country. He appointed Alexander Arkchiev, Inspector General of the Artillery, to begin preparations for war. Still, he held back attacking the French or protesting Napoleon's advances until the French army kidnapped the Prince of Baden and had him executed. This principality was home of Alexander's wife, Elizabeth. The Tsar was incensed and sent an angry letter to Napoleon protesting the murder. Talleyrand, the French foreign minister, replied that Paul's murderers were never prosecuted, poking at the one thing that Alexander felt true guilt about. Obviously, the emperor was angrier than ever before. Ambassadors on both sides were recalled. By 1804, an anti-French alliance was being negotiated, even though Alexander had little respect for his allies, especially King George III of Great Britain, who he considered insane, and Francis II of Austria, who he once said of that he was, quote, a fool in full dress. The British offered Russia 1.25 million pounds per year for every 100,000 Russian soldiers that were committed to the war effort. The British were understandably nervous as word was spreading that Napoleon was preparing to invade the British Isles. But it was all a ruse, as the newly proclaimed French Emperor was actually planning to take his Grand Armée and attack Austria. With 200,000 men, Napoleon, along with his German allies, Württemberg and Bavaria, waited on the Austrians to make the first move. Stupidly, Austrian general Karl Mach von Lieberich, believing that the French army was split, invaded Bavaria before the Russian army had arrived. Mach made it to the city of Ulm on the Danube when the general saw that the numbers were not in his favor. The Russians were nearby, but were in no rush to help, as there was a total lack of cooperation because the Russians refused to be led by a mere general. Archduke Ferdinand was called upon to be the leader, but this was to prove to be a disaster, as he was a totally incompetent buffoon. Ferdinand, seeing the poor situation, immediately fled the scene, leaving Mack alone. Napoleon routed the Austrians and forced them to surrender. Alexander, who was now at the head of another Russian army, headed to Berlin to meet with King Frederick William III of Prussia to convince him to join the anti-French alliance. But the king refused, wanting to stay neutral. But the real reason is he was very likely to be truly fearful of Napoleon. Next week, Russia's army meets with disaster and is forced to sign a peace treaty with the French which doesn't last too long before Napoleon decided to invade Russia. Now, for this week in Russian history, for the weeks of June 12th through the 25th. In 1605, Fyodor II of Russia, Tsar, died. 
1671, Stenka Razin, the Cossack rebel leader, was executed. In 1755, Princess Natalia Alexievna, the ill-fated first wife of Tsar Paul I, was born. In 1794, Empress Catherine II of Russia grants Jews permission to settle in Kiev. In 1807, Emperor Napoleon I's French Grande Armée defeats the Russian army at the Battle of Friedland in Poland, ending the War of the Fourth Coalition. In 1807, Admiral Dmitry Senyavin destroys the Ottoman fleet in the Battle of Athos. In 1812, Napoleon I of France invades Russia. Now in 1908, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, one of the great Russian composers, passes away. In 1918, Grand Duke Mikhail of Russia, younger brother of Tsar Nicholas II, is murdered. In 1940, the Soviet Union presents an ultimatum to Lithuania, resulting in Lithuanian loss of independence. In 1941, we have the June de deportations, the first major wave of Soviet mass deportations and murder of Estonians, Latvians, and Lithuanians begins. In 1941 also, Germany invades the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa. In 1944, excuse me, it was the opening day of the Soviet Union's Operation Bagration against the German Army Corps Center. In 1948, we have the start of the Berlin Blockade. The Soviet Union makes overland travel between West Germany and West Berlin impossible. There's an excellent podcast, by the way, at the History According to Bob about the blockade. And I really heartily recommend everybody listen to that one, as well as just listening to Bob as a whole. In 1967, U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson meets with Soviet Premier Alexei Kosygin in Glassboro, New Jersey, for the three-day Glassboro Summit Conference. In 1990, we have Russia Day. The Parliament of the Russian Federation formally declared its sovereignty. And in 1991, someone that we're going to be covering probably sometime late this year or early next, Russians elect Boris Yeltsin as the President of the Republic. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. As a favor, I'd appreciate it if you gave me a favorable rating on iTunes really helps bump me up the list and helps increase the listenership. Now, don't forget to visit the Facebook fan page at Russian Rulers History Podcast or visit the website at russianrulers.podhoster.com. Make a suggestion, leave a comment, ask a question. And as always, das vidanya i spasiba bolshoya. And to my dad, I know you're listening now. Thank you for everything. <laughs>